Tonight's talk is titled, The Red Pill or the Blue Pill? <laughs> if I were to offer you the red pill or the blue pill, which one would you take? The blue pill means that you sleepwalk through life. You see the surface of things, the illusion of things, and you think that that's the truth. Your responses are automatic. Your existence is a bit like a robot, but it seems pretty easy. The red pill means that your eyes are opened and that you see. You see the truth about things. You live awake. You search deeply. There are, however, a couple of problems with the red pill. One of them is that you see all of it, that you can't pick and choose, that you see the ugly and the beautiful, the happy and the sad, the joy and the sorrow, the peace and the restlessness. It's a package deal. And the other problem with the red pill is that you can't go back to sleep. You can't turn back. So which pill would you take? Many of, the, uh, many of you will recognize this scenario from the movie the, the Matrix. The protagonist is offered these two pills, and he takes the red one, the one being awake. It's quite a ride. It isn't easy. He sees a lot. He goes through a lot. He has many of his ideas and assumptions challenged. Sometimes he even wishes that he'd taken the blue pill. It seems like the blue pill would be easier, at least right now. So which one would you take? I have news for you. If you come here and you come to this hall and you try to do this practice, just try, you've chosen the red pill. Meditation is about waking up and seeing life as it is. And it's not always easy. You've probably figured that out <laughs> by now. Sometimes life is about boredom. We take the red pill and we sit here and we be with boredom because that's our life right now. Sometimes the red pill is about restlessness. We sit here and we feel like we're going to jump out of our skins and there's a voice screaming in our head, when is she going to ring the bell? It's been at least an hour by now. And that's our mind, that's being awake. And we're here with that right now because we've chosen the red pill. We've chosen to be awake to our experience, to our life. Meditation is about opening our minds and opening our hearts and opening to our lives exactly as they are. It's about learning to see, about being with our experiences, 
no matter what they are. The ups, the downs, the ins, the outs. It's about getting to know ourselves very deeply, very intimately. It's about seeing our strengths and our weaknesses and about holding all of that and knowing that we're still okay, even with those weaknesses. That we're okay not only in our kindness and our generosity and in our loyalty, but that we're also okay in our selfishness, our meanness, our pettiness. Meditation is about learning to embrace all of ourselves and be okay with that. Meditation is also about listening to wisdom within yourself and seeing what makes us genuinely happy and what makes us unhappy. Slowly, we learn to untangle ourselves from our unhappiness. Meditation is not only about knowing who we are, but it's also about knowing what we are. What is a thought? What's an emotion, a pain? What am I? How am I separate? How am I connected? How does this universe work? How can I be happy in life, given the way things are? So we've set up a scientific experiment here. We are the guinea pigs, and this is the lab. No report is due, it's just your life. My teacher Joseph Goldstein said, if you want to know your mind, sit down and look at it. So that's what we've done here. We have a little laboratory where we sit down and we look at our minds and we get to know them, we get to know ourselves. There are two tools that help us in this investigation, concentration and mindfulness. So I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about these two tools that help us in our exploration. The first one is concentration. Marv talked a little bit about that last night. That's getting here. The first thing we have to do is get here. Most of the time, we're lost in thought, distraction, memories, planning, fantasies, stories, movies in our mind. With concentration, we keep bringing ourselves back to here, to now, in order to develop this sense of being wholeheartedly here and with ourselves. It's simple because it's just about coming back again and again. But as you've probably figured out, it's not so easy. If you haven't figured that out yet, you will. <laughs> as I said, we're usually lost in a lot of thought, lost somewhere besides for here. I'd like to read something called The Waterfall, which kind of explains how this works. As we let the body and breath settle down, the next aspect of arriving is settling the mind. What do we see when we look at the mind? Constant change. 
In the traditional scriptures, the untrained and unconcentrated mind is referred to like a mad monkey. As we look for ourselves, we see that it is like a circus or a zoo in there. The parrot, the sloth, the mouse, the tiger, the bear, and the silent owl are all represented. It is like a flywheel of spinning thoughts, emotions, images, stories, likes, dislikes, and so, so forth. There is ceaseless movement filled with plans, ideas, and memories. Seeing this previously unconscious stream of inner dialogue is for many people the first insight in practice. It's called seeing the waterfall. So I'm assuming that most of you here have had at least this first insight into practice, into seeing our minds and the constant change and movement that goes on in them. When this happens, when we first notice this, we often feel very discouraged. We go, oh my God, I can't meditate. <laughs> the first time I meditated, um, actually I was living in Nicaragua, I was 23, and a friend had um, lent me a book about meditation called, I'm spacing on the name, but it's by Stephen Levine, and um, A Gradual Awakening. And I read this book, and it just made a lot of sense to me. I thought, this is really telling it like it is, so I'm going to meditate. And I got all set up in a chair and had my little book. I'd read the instructions, so I closed my eyes and tried to focus on my breath. I couldn't follow half a breath without my mind going off. And after five minutes, I said, this is impossible. Nobody can do this. <laughs> and I stopped. <laughs> It just seemed like an insurmountable task to me to try to um, deal with this mind that was so very, very busy. At next, I signed up for the three-month retreat here. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how, how I took that leap after deciding that meditation was impossible. But I think I knew, I think I knew that it was going to help me, that it had to work, that it was going to work. Um, and it does. <laughs> so if you're having that feeling like, wow, I just can't do this, this is too much, know that you're not alone, that that's um, very common at the beginning, and it doesn't mean that you can't do it, and it doesn't mean that it can't be done. My teacher Joseph likes to talk about his early meditation practice. He said, oh, it was very easy. He goes, I'd sit down, I'd think, and the bell would ring. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and he also believes it can be done. <laughs> so the first job with uh, the meditation practice is getting here. Sometimes I call it coming home. It's a really big part of our early practice, and, well, it's a big part all along. <laughs> and we use the breath as an anchor to help us do this. It kind of gives us a fighting chance. It helps settle down by the mind by giving the mind a neutral place to go to. So each time we're lost, we come back to the breath, the sensations of breathing, 
reader and we're going to be adding instructions, we become aware of all of our experience. We don't exclude any part. So we come back to all of our experience. But in the beginning, we focus a lot on the breath to help the mind settle down. Now, doing this practice takes a certain amount of effort. It's active. You know, when you notice you're lost, you have to make the decision to come back to the breath. But it also can't be forced. You can't force concentration to happen. It just develops naturally from returning to the breath every time you're lost. A lot of times we think when we first meditate that we ought to be able to control whether we go off into thought and that if we're thinking a lot it's because we're not trying hard enough or we're no good at this and that you know we should somehow be able to make this mind do what we ask it to do. It's not true. We can't control whether we go off into thought. The only time that we really have a choice is when we notice that we're lost and then we can choose to go back to the breath. And maybe half a breath later, the mind goes off again. But that's okay. That's just how the mind works. The point where we have a choice is that point when we wake up, when we say, okay, I'm going to go back to the breath. I remember um, in that first long retreat that I signed up for, <laughs> uh, I was really struggling and I thought, you know, I really thought I was a bad meditator because I couldn't uh, make my mind stop thinking, you know, that it was just thinking, thinking, thinking. So I finally went into an interview with one of my teachers and I kind of reported to her how horrible a meditator I was because I couldn't make it stop thinking. And she told me this. She said, you know, you don't have any control whether you go off into thought. The only moment you have really any choice in the matter is the moment you wake up. And I was like, oh, well then maybe I can do this. Because I had thought if I had to try to control my thinking that that wasn't going to work, I couldn't do it. But I thought if all I have to do is when I notice I'm lost, return to the breath, that's doable. I can do that. And it was like a huge relief. It made the practice seem something that could be done. So don't get discouraged if you notice a lot of thought. It's entirely normal. And don't assume that if you're lost in thought a lot that that means that you should quit and never come back here. It's not true. It's a little bit like Mars said last night, it's about training a puppy, you know? It takes a little while to train the puppy. <laughs> and all we do with the puppy is we be firm but gentle. So firm in that when we notice we're lost, we come back to the breath but gentle in that we don't whip ourselves over what our experience is. Concentration is good stuff. It develops tranquility and calm. It's nice when we can quiet our minds for even a moment or two. You know, you might just sometime in the next few days just have a taste of a moment or two where there's just a settling, oh, I'm here. It's nice. It also gives a power to our mind, concentration does. Some people um, liken it to what they call the zone in sports. You know, when you're really focused on something, you're really into it, there's a lot of power. I know that the Chicago Bulls study this kind of um, meditation to help improve their game. 
We also um, can use uh, concentration for studying. It's great for helping us concentrate on our um, studies. You know how it is when you're trying to study and you read a whole paragraph, and then at the end you go, uh-huh, what was that about? Wait a moment. You weren't there, you know? <laughs> so concentration is that ability to get there and to, uh, to read the page. I remember one time when I used concentration when I was taking my GREs, I had to take the tests for um, graduate school. And they have this one section called logic. It, there's three sections, English, math, and logic. And the logic sessions, the logic section has the most ridiculous questions you've ever heard. It's kind of like, you know, if Terry lives on the fifth floor and likes pizza, and Marv and uh, Diana share an apartment on the first floor and go out for Chinese food, you know, what kind of food does um, Al on the sixth floor like to eat? You know, just like these kind of, and you have to like put all the pieces together and follow this train of thought to kind of figure out the problems. And every time I'd read one of those, I'd just panic. I'd go, oh my God, I don't have a clue, you know. And I'd, you know, find my mind really spinning off. And then I'd go, oh, all I have to do is come back, you know. So it was like, oh, just come back, come back, come back. And it really helped in the test. I actually did quite fine on the logic session. And partly was because I had that ability to call my mind back when it started spinning out. So concentration has a lot of benefits, not only practical benefits in you know studying and sports and all, but then the benefit that I mentioned of um, tranquility and peace in our minds. So concentration gets us here. Then the other part, um, the other tool that's really important is mindfulness. And mindfulness is once we get here, it's being aware of what's happening. I sometimes say you know, my, uh, concentration is getting us to the park and mindfulness is smelling the roses once we're there. So it's about connecting to our experience, really being with it, and being with it with depth. For example, we have ideas about what a pain is like a pain in our knee. We might think, oh, my knee hurts. In meditation, we actually go into that pain and see what's really happening. You know, what are the sensations? How do they change? Um, you know, what's really happening here? That's what I mean about we go into depth. Or for example, emotion, uh, anger. You know, we can say I'm angry and we have ideas about what anger is, but what is it really? So we'll be giving instructions in the next couple of days of what you do with anger, you know, going into it and seeing what is it. It's thoughts, it's bodily sensations. Really exploring our experience deeply. That's what mindfulness is. Not exploring on the surface, but really going in and exploring. So with mindfulness, we become deeply interested in our experience. We want to see it all and then understand it and understand what really makes us happy and what causes us sorrow. We become interested in all of it, the happiness and the sorrow. It's very inclusive. It's like I said, we don't, it's a package deal. We, and we take all of it. When we take that red pill, we've decided that we'll take the whole package. There's a little story I want to read um, by Sharon Salzberg called Coming Alive. It said, not long ago, a friend of mine who is normally a fairly healthy person came down with a terrible case of pneumonia and was very close to dying. 
Sometime after his illness, I arrived home and found a message from him on my answering machine. Just as I was about to call him back, the phone rang. The caller happened to be a mutual friend. When I told her that I had to get off the phone to call our friend, she said in response, Do you know that he almost died? I told her that I did, and we ended the conversation so I could give him a call. Just as I hung up, the phone rang again, and it was another mutual friend. Once more, I told the caller I needed to get off the phone to speak with a friend who was sick, and she immediately said, Well, do you know he almost died? When I finally managed to reach my friend, I said, I think I may now refer to you as he who almost died. And my friend replied, Well, it's better than being known as he who almost lived. How do you mean that, I asked. Do you mean it like he who almost escaped with his life but at the last moment didn't? No, he said. More in the sense of how we can spend a lifetime almost living rather than being truly alive. Taking the red pill means being truly alive, going through life, living all of it. So what might all of it be? (laughs) We're usually pretty happy to look at the pleasant side of life and at the pleasant side of ourselves. So often when we come to meditation, what we become aware of is some of the unpleasant side of life and some of the unpleasant sides of ourselves. For example, some of you might be experiencing a lot of restlessness, that feeling like you're about to go crazy, You can't stand it anymore. You have to get out of this hall. You might even wind up leaving screaming. (laughs) That feeling that you just, ah, (laughs) that's restlessness. And that really is very common in this practice that that comes up. And so if we're taking the red pill, what we're saying is, I can be with restlessness. That's okay. I can let it be. Some others of you might be experiencing a lot of sleepiness, the opposite of restlessness. That's very common. (laughs) My first retreat, I was just a pro at sleepiness. That was the one that I experienced all the time. (laughs) Sometimes in the evening meditations, they were the worst, like after 6 p.m. for me. Sometimes I would almost fall asleep during walking meditation. So that's pretty sleepy. But if we've decided to take the red pill, that means, oh, I can be with sleepiness. That's okay. And we try to work with it in the practice. We try to find ways to up our energy, such as opening our eyes. Sometimes when we're sleeping, opening our sleepy, opening our eyes will help, or standing up. But it also means that sometimes we just have to accept that that's the way it is. Sometimes when we meditate, we have to look at a mind that wants. You might have noticed this mind, the mind that thinks, oh, what's for lunch? I can't wait for lunch. I hope we get cookies for lunch. (laughs) Lunch can dominate our thoughts in the morning on a meditation retreat. (laughs) Or the mind that thinks, oh, when I get out of here, I'm going to go have some pizza with my friends. That'll be really nice. (laughs) Or the mind that just wants thinks, oh, I want this, 
I want that. It's a common theme when we meditate. Can we be okay with that? Can we just accept the wanting mind? Can we be aware of it when it arises, say, oh, that's wanting, and just let it be, not get lost? Some of you might be experiencing anger or fear or hatred, kind of the opposite of wanting, the not wanting mind. That's not uncommon either. Early in my practice, I spent many meditation periods just being with fear and anger over and over again. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong if these things come up. It just means that you're opening to all of life, both the pleasant and the unpleasant, the pretty and the ugly. Another thing that comes up, though, when you notice that these things happen, what we learn as we meditate more is that our minds are all pretty basically the same, and that we're okay if these things happen. They happen to everybody. I remember my first um, retreat again, we had a, a group interviews, and we would go into these interviews, and people would say, oh, I'm sleepy, or I'm angry, I'm restless, and everything, and I would just go, oh, great, good, it's not just me, <laughs> you know? I felt so relieved. <laughs> it was, uh, it's just the human mind, this is how it works. And a big part of meditation is learning to be at peace with the human mind, is learning to be at peace with the way things are. And the way, the first step in that is seeing it. So here we are seeing it. We see these blocks to our happiness. We see what makes us lose our peace of mind. And we learn to work with them in such a way that we can be restless and be okay. We can be sleepy and be okay. We can be wanting and be okay. That we learn to accept all of it. So each time we choose to be our with our experience, whatever it is, we're taking the red pill. We're choosing life. We're choosing awakeness. We're choosing awareness. So we become interested in it all, and it's very freeing. Another thing I remember from my early practice was um, I tended to be a person before I started meditation. I was somewhat uptight, quite uptight, actually. And I didn't uh, tend to have room for many emotions. I, I had very few that I thought were acceptable. And uh, about 10 days into this first long retreat, I was suddenly just bombarded with every emotional emotion conceivable, uh, loneliness, anger, fear, sadness, uh, resentment. Uh, you know, it just went on and on, and I thought, this is a disaster. <laughs> I went into my meditation teacher, who was Joseph Goldstein at the time, and I said, oh, Joseph, you wouldn't believe what's happening. I'm feeling sad and lonely and angry and disappointed and um, fearful and um, raging and this and that and everything. And I went on for a few minutes, and then he just looks at me and said, What's the problem? <laughs> and I was like, you mean there's not a problem? <laughs> He's like, no, that's okay. That's your experience. 
And for me, it was just a mind-boggling moment. It was like, wow, all these things can be happening to me and that can be okay. I can accept all of myself. I don't have to pick and choose. It was a very freeing moment. So this practice, as we open to whatever is happening to us, we become more accepting of ourselves. We learn to hold our reactions, whatever they are, whatever emotions are, our reactions are, our experience are, we learn to hold them with space and with care. And in that way we find more peace in our lives because we find that we don't have to run from ourselves. We don't have to be afraid of ourselves or of our minds or of our suffering because we can hold it with care. It's a very gentle practice, balanced with discipline. So the discipline is we show up here. (laughs) We come to the meditation periods. That's a huge part is just coming to your cushion. (laughs) That's really, uh, if you can do that much, you're really doing well. The other part of the discipline is making some attempt to develop concentration by focusing, you know, making some attempt to be aware of our experience, you know, in whatever way we can do that. And for however long we can do that, we might only be able to do it for five minutes and we might need to space out the next 25. That's okay. You know, however long we can manage. And then the gentle gentleness part is just holding our experience with care and acceptance. If we can learn this part too, we're well on our way. The Buddha said, be a light unto yourself. Come and see for yourself. That was his invitation with meditation, was come and see for yourself. And so that's our invitation too. You know, come to the meditation sessions and see for yourself. So which pill do you want? The red pill or the blue pill? (laughs) I'd just like to end with a poem that is about uh, mindfulness and attention by my favorite poet, Mary Oliver. And the poem is called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what prayer is. I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, 
how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's sit for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.